This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Philip Singh, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. Farmer-owned co-ops include millions of successful businessmen and women, today's farmers, who own and run co-ops. They're responsible for companies that feed the world and create jobs both on and off the farm. Learn more at ncfc.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Philip Singh next. The National Council of Farmer Cooperatives is the voice of America's farmer cooperatives. These farmer-owned co-ops are comprised of millions of successful businessmen and women, today's farmers. They own and run co-ops and are responsible for companies that feed the world and create hundreds of thousands of jobs both on and off the farm. To learn more about how farmer-run co-ops keep the future bright for America and agriculture, visit ncfc.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. U.S. meat industry has experienced a rebound year and global red meat export sales this year. Philip Singh, president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, says they're seeing returns from previous groundwork to open markets, along with a favorable swing in global market conditions. Sometimes things come together and they work against you, but actually this year they've come together and worked for us. For example, on the beef side, the Australian supply has been down due to a drought in Australia, so their cattle numbers are still going to be stressed for the next uh, probably two to three years. And I think that's going to be a window of opportunity for us as we have that duty differential in Japan. But we've done very well in Korea, and if we take a look at this, uh, just Japan and Korea alone, uh, we have eclipsed Australia uh, in total market share as far as uh, Korea is concerned. And in Japan, we eclipsed Australia on the chilled side. So I think that's uh, very, very encouraging when we take a look at that, those numbers. And I think uh, on the pork side, we're encouraged by the, the growth we've had in China this year. Of course, as their, their supply was down, but now that's coming back. Uh, we had an opportunity to sell a lot of pork quick, quickly to China. And China became the number one pork importer in the world this past year. They eclipsed Japan. So... When you take a look at this, there's been some things that have been positive for us and uh, in spite of some of the obstacles that we still encounter. What's the strategic advantage that U.S. meat has in the global marketplace, whether it be for pork? Well, I think one of the advantages we have is we have a very high-quality, consistent product. And if you're a buyer in a restaurant or you print a menu and you say you have U.S. beef or U.S. pork, you want to have a consistent product with the quality assurance that you're going to get throughout that process. And I think that the, when you take a look at what I always call the Holy Trinity with the FDA and then APHIS and then FSIS as far as assuring that we have, and then you have all the, the beef quality assurance programs, the pork quality assurance programs. When you take a look at the whole infrastructure we have in the United States, it's really second to none. This is one thing that we extol internationally about the, the dependability and the quality and the safety of our product, but then this consistent quality, consistency in, in safety. And uh, I think uh, it's, it's one of the greatest stories that, that we can tell and, and needs to be told more, both domestically and internationally for that matter. Have we recovered from the port strike so many months ago? You know, from the standpoint of our numbers, we have, but I think what a port strike does when we had that, and it wasn't a strike, but it's a slowdown, what that does, it calls into question the reliability of the United States as a supplier. And everybody knows that every five years those contracts are negotiated, and sometimes it's even before that. And so people are watching this because the reliability of of the uh, United States becomes becomes a big question. And where we were uh, at once at one time the largest chilled supplier in a lot of a lot of areas that was threatened in, in Europe and some of our other countries, Canada. 
benefited dramatically as a result of that uh, that issue. So, so anything that would interrupt trade, give the buyers in these markets pause, uh, is is not good, and that that lingers for a while. I can remember back in the '80s when they had these huge strikes in Australia, and it, it bothered uh, them immensely because they weren't dependable, they weren't reliable. And I think that's one thing that we have to extol is the reliability of the United States. When that happened. The first week of January, I flew to Japan and Korea, and I met with the major buyers in these markets, and I said, hey, you can count on us. We're we're going to be back. And, of course, I didn't know what the outcome was going to be, but we're trying to give them assurances that the United States is a reliable supplier. So there's a lot of attention that goes to that. It's a a big thing, and that's the lingering impact of something like this. The numbers are back, but those doubts are still there. So when we look to 2017, what are the bright spots that you're encouraged by? Well, I think on, in 2017, I think number one is we're encouraged by the fact that, that we think 2017 is going to be another good year for us. Uh, we're predicting in 2017 that we'll probably be up about, and I think this is conservative, and I, we like to be conservative with our numbers because I, yeesh, it's just I, I think the way we do it, and then hopefully we can exceed these numbers. But we're looking at about a 5% growth on the beef side and about a 5% growth on the pork side. And again, I'm hoping this is conservative, but uh, usually we exceed these forecasts, but uh, that's what we're looking at. So we're looking at growth, and uh, I think the other key thing is uh, I look at is the the, uh, the percent of our uh, exports uh, from the uh, from the total industry. We export about 24% of the pork and about 13 to 14% of the beef. We want to maintain that ratio as the numbers continue to grow in the United States, and as you know, we have record production levels at this point in time. If we can maintain those shares or increase those shares, what's going international, that means we're doing more than pulling our weight. So these are numbers that I look at very, very closely. The optimists would have looked a few months ago and thought that the lame duck session would have approved the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and we would be looking to implementation in 2017 <coughs> and 18. Now we don't have that agreement as assured. Is that a cloud for the year ahead? I think the fact that the United States and the rhetoric that's gone on associated with the pre-election and then possibly what's going on post-election, uh, of course it's hard to just discern what is posturing and, and what is not, and maybe this could be interpreted as this is posturing in order to get better deals in the future uh, and extract more from, from our trading partners. On the other hand, you know, when we become protectionistic and we say that we're going to raise rates, raise tariffs, as we become more protectionistic, it becomes harder for us because those countries that we deal with, they'll retaliate as well, and they'll, they'll raise their duties, etc. And I, I can take the pork complex, for example, where there, we have three new plants coming on board. If it becomes more difficult for the American exporters, the American pork uh, packers, let's say, the, the processors, for them to export compared to Canada or to Mexico or to Europe, um, then it becomes it becomes an issue, and uh, what that does long term, if protectionism continues to grow, again it, it, it sows these seeds. And if you're top management in a company, where are you going to put your plants in the future? Where are you going to invest your dollars in the future to get that safe that return on that investment? And if it becomes easier in Canada, if it becomes more more business friendly in other markets, that's where that money's going to go. So I'm concerned. I'm concerned that, that this trade rhetoric, at some point in time, we need to move off this protectionism type of thing and, and get, let's get back to being the Yankee traders that has really given the United States this edge we've had in trade for all these years. This is an opinion question, but do you think the rhetoric has already hurt us? 
I think it's it's again it's raised doubts. Um, I, I I'd like to say that you know it's still right, we're in the lame duck session at this point in time, but 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 frankly. Um, I think that we need to see what's good about some of these agreements, and I, I think there's no harm in revisiting NAFTA. There's no harm in taking a look at TPP and seeing where else we could maybe do better. But at some point in time, we've got to recognize that the Australians in 2015 signed an EPA with Japan. I can tell you within the next 45 days there's going to be an EPA signed with Japan and, and the EU, and that's going to make them more competitive in, in the Japanese market than we are. And right now, Australia, just going on two years, has over a 10% duty advantage, both on chilled and frozen. And as we take a look at this, this is what what concerns me. It's it's you know you don't want to make the the perfect the enemy of the good. And I, I really think that there's opportunities right now, but we have to be cognizant. Not only are we that we're not dealing in a vacuum, that we have to be aware there's competition and very very worthy competition out there because the world sees. The, the growth that's going on, for example, 65% of the world's middle class is going to be in Asia over the course of the next 15 years. People are looking at that. They're, they're, they're all focused on that. And whereas sometimes people here would say, well, these markets, you've been in those markets for 30 years. They're old markets. We'll find new markets. But just because they're older markets or developed markets, it doesn't mean they don't continue to, to be developing. And so what we see is the Europeans, for example, in Asia – they're saying these are new markets. We're excited with all the things that are going on. And so we really have worthy competition. And as they negotiate trade agreements and they have this tremendous fervor to export to these markets, it really makes it more difficult for the United States. So, yes, uh, that, that rhetoric can hurt us. Uh, we, we're going to continue to negotiate. There's always going to be negotiations. There's always going to be new changes in technology and things like this. But we have to at some point in time say, hey, Let's go forward and um, and let's get the best we can get now, and let's go back and get some more later. The Department of Agriculture this past week suggesting that farm income is down again three years in a row. The livestock producer receiving over 12% less this year than last year. If you're a producer, you could accept that you're getting less money for your product if you're growing global markets. But how is the value of the U.S. dollar affecting our competitiveness in those global markets, despite what the producer is receiving here at home? Well, the dollar is one one factor, and I always tell our staff that don't excuse yourself because we have a strong dollar. We still have to market the product. There's cattle and hogs being killed every day, and we, we have to be aggressive. <clears throat> but it is a factor. The, 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 the strong dollar it becomes very difficult, especially where you're dealing with commodities. We found that the more we can brand our product, the more that we can tell a story about our product, the more people will pay for it. So that's less. You know, there's less uh, uh, tendency to to maybe move away from U.S. product if you have a brand on it. And you're, but that's in the higher valued markets. So the dollar is is a factor. But the other thing about trade, we can talk about producer income being down 12 percent each year. Every pound of pork and every pound of beef that we export, we export for more dollars than we could sell it here in the United States. So the whole export complex is pulling those prices upward. Now, granted, it's not high enough as far as every producer knows right now, but that 25%, those one out of every four hogs that's being exported or one out of every uh, seven uh, cattle that's being exported, this this is important. This is bringing the price index up as far as, as, far as we're concerned. So... It's very important, this export market, and that's why anything that would retard our ability to export at this very grave time as far as the industry is concerned would be, would be disastrous. And so we're, we're very focused on this, and we're going to be, our staff, we're all going to be meeting uh, very soon here to talk about demand and how we can build more demand in these markets. Uh, we're, we're, we're very focused on what we can do 
uh, to alleviate the stress and the pain that's going on in the production sector today. Phil, you mentioned the growth of the middle class in Asia. Let's talk about the globe as it stands with regard to consumer demand. How is it shifting? How is it changing? And is it coming to an advantage for the red meat producer? Yes, it is. Um, you know, 80% of the buying power in the world is outside the United States. 65% of the world's middle class is going to be in Asia. They have uh, Asia has tremendous infrastructure for the most part. I mean, if when you take a look, especially at North Asia, so the delivery there, if you look at Europe and the success Europe has had in Asia since the closure of the Russian market, you have the distribution chains, you have the credit programs in, in place where the banking, and, and it's all there. Really, it's a question of our commitment and how much dedication do we have to really going after these markets. But it's a, it's a tremendous opportunity, not only in Asia, but uh, we're seeing growth in Mexico. We're seeing the NAFTA countries, both Canada and Mexico, that's 40% of our exports go north and south. So uh, when we take a look at especially these major markets, this is where we're going to move product immediately. Uh, longer term, yeah, MES is all about market development, and we work in on 100 markets around the world. And so all these markets, uh, we can't say they're all going to be a Japan or a Mexico in the future, but they all they all take different parts of our carcasses. And as you start looking at these different markets, what Japan buys, what Taiwan buys, it's a whole mosaic of meat that's out there in this world. And so what we're doing is taking a look at which markets, which cuts, where can we maximize the value, and that's the model that MEF uses in order to maximize value back to the producer. What's the potential for the Chinese market. I mean, we know what it means to soybeans, about a fourth of the crop that we raise. And we already know that Japan was the the prize inside the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But what does China mean now? And what could China mean if they would accept more of our product of beef and pork? Sometimes you look at markets, which markets are dependable and which ones are not dependable. I think for the meat industry, China still is not a dependable market. We're selling a lot of pork there. We're selling a little beef there. But to be very frank, um, I think the Chinese market has a lot, of, a lot of areas that we need to work out before we can say that we can depend on that market and there won't be problems. It's, it's trouble-free trade. And so what we're always looking at is can we get to a situation like we have with Japan or Korea or Mexico or Canada? We're not there yet when it comes to China. But it does offer potential. I mean, the buying power of the Chinese, the, 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 the fact that there's more urban Chinese now than there is rural Chinese, uh, the rate of change in that market, the rate of um, e-commerce in that market. I mean, there's a lot of factors that are going on in China that are really lend itself, but we still have a, a, a very centrally controlled regime. It's very obsessed with control. It's very nationalistic in its approach. And so we have to really take a look at this. How can we deal with China? I think still our U.S. government is still trying to figure out how can we work with China. We're still trying to figure out what's the, what's, what's the avenues in order to have this further access. The Chinese will readily buy soybeans. They'll readily buy whatever they can because that will help them foster their pork production so they can say they're more self-sufficient. But in the end of the day, um, we're going to have to see how this is going to work out. But that, I think the answer to your question is still remains in the future. But we're not there yet. We have a lot of problems we're dealing with. We're working through these problems. I compliment this administration for what they've tried to do in, in China, especially on beef and pork. They've been very focused on this. And these talks that they had just last, just the day before Thanksgiving were disappointing, as uh, Secretary Vilsack indicated. 
but I think the resolve that we have as far as the Chinese market, it's our number one agricultural export market. They import about $25 billion worth of U.S. product. So it's a major market. For us, it's still a market of the future. We have a lot of potential there yet to, to, to realize. It's been 13 years since the BSE situation that surfaced here in the U.S. And just in September, the Chinese suggested they were willing to allow U.S. beef back in their borders. But no details. And as you mentioned, no details that came from the JCCT meeting, where many had hoped that that would be the opening of the door for U.S. beef into China. What picks the lock and makes that happen? Well, I think that's that's the $64,000 question. China, at best, is a very reluctant importer of meat. They're a reluctant importer. And for us, in, in our relationship, the number one economy, the number two economy, I've often said they're like two seismic plates. They're rubbing up against each other. And some areas you let pressure off, and some areas you don't. And every once in a while you have an earthquake, as you, if you can imagine. That's kind of the U.S.-China relationship. It's two tectonic plates rubbing up against each other, and you never know where there's going to be a quake. And the way I look at this, with China, uh, there's a lot of issues still associated with beef access. We propose to them a traceability system um, and uh, what we call a bookend traceability system. They're taking a look at this. Uh, sometimes when they look at these things, it's Chinese time. It's not this fast time that we have in the United States. Uh, there's issues as far as sanctions, what happens if we'd ever have another case. Uh, there's many questions still that are associated with this whole thing with China before we can have our exporters feel um, there's an EV program, an export verification program. Uh, there's a 30-month uh, break as far as our, our product is concerned. There's, there's listings of products that are eligible and ineligible products. So all this still has to be worked out. So what we see with China is, yes, it's a tremendously potential market, but there's tremendous issues that you have to deal with, and that's and, and beef is no separate. It's not different. Uh, we still have these same issues dealing with beef. So, Phil, what's left on the table with TPP and limbo, with Japan, with other Asian nations, and then the factor of China's rise in leadership and a U.S. fall? Well, you know, I follow Japanese news pretty closely, and the Japanese are very enthused about TPP and the whole Pacific Rim is, and I think they were all depending much more than just a trade relationship, this whole relationship with the United States that's been the centerpiece of our whole Asian strategy since the end of World War II. So anything that's shaking that foundation, I think, is of concern because there is an ascending China. There is no doubt there's an ascending China. China is becoming more assertive. And we don't want to drive these folks into the Chinese market. Uh, Many of these countries, whether it's Korea, whether it's Taiwan, whether it's uh, Singapore, their number one trading partner is already China. So, so China, in, by by the enormity of its market, has tremendous leverage already on these countries. But but the, the the regional cooperation economic partnership that China has doesn't have anywhere near the teeth that the TPP program does. I mean, TPP is more than just trade. There's a whole SPS chapter. It's, it's uh, on TPP. It's time bound as far as this dispute settlement. You have to have uh, scientific evidence if you're going to if you're going to close a market for some reasons. You got to produce a risk assessment showing that you've done the science to do this type of stuff. I mean, there's there's quick panels that can be called to redress grievances. There's much more to this TPP thing than just what's the level of terrification going into the XYZ country. And so, to me, the more that we can get TPP going. And the more that we can get on board with TPP or whatever they call it, or whatever reincarnation it has going forward, 
the main thing is that we engage the world on trade and that we continue to trade because that's where our national interest is. The world is growing at a faster rate. And when you look at the past decade, trade has not been rising to the degree that it was in the 90s. In the 1990s, trade was growing twice as fast as the global economy. Today, it's less than that. And so we need to do more to generate more trade for the health of our industries. It's in the national interest, but also it's in the interest of a lot of our, our, our nations that we're friendly with. And so I think we have to continue to, to keep pushing forward. Well, Philip Singh, on behalf of AgriPulse, we would like to thank you for your service to the American meat industry and to livestock producers in the country. This is Open mic, and sir, in closing, you have an open forum. Well, thank you very much. And again, I just would like to say that anything that we can do to perpetuate and enhance our ability to trade as a nation and also to trade as an industry, the red meat industry, uh, that's what we need to be working on because that's where the future is. It's in the trade arena. Our thanks to Philip Singh, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. Farmer-owned co-ops include millions of successful businessmen and women, today's farmers, who own and run co-ops. They are responsible for companies that feed the world and create jobs both on and off the farm. Learn more at ncfc.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.